वेलकम टू फ्यूचर इमेजिन पॉडकास्ट आई एम संदीप दास एंड आई हैव फॉरसाइट फॉर ग्लोबल इमर्जिंग कंट्रीज इज पार्ट ऑफ अ न्यूली फॉर्म्ड ग्लोबल फॉरसाइट टीम You might remember me as the pesky narcissistic host from a previous episode on presence-free living. To your delight, I intend to keep playing that role. Sometimes I reminisce about my younger days and the way I purchased products. Not that I'm very old now, but during my early childhood, I was always buy from the local corner store or the mom and pop outlet. The store owners were warm, friendly. and they were an integral part of my growing up years i would play cricket outside their stores and when things got heated up the store owner would often double up as a referee in college came the booming organized retail the fancy displays the premium locations massive collections but a slightly impersonal experience as i entered my first internship at work came in one of the world's most innovative firms Amazon trying to disrupt this space taking everything online the part of the world i come from emerging countries think of asia africa latin america has seen some tremendous innovation over the last 2 to 3 years think of new channels like live streaming in china human less shops and innovative partnerships of food services with fmcg and tech firms In this episode I plan to explore all these emerging channels and alternate business models. What makes them tick? What is the future of these channels post covid in the lovely part of the world we all call home? To members of our audience you will know by now that I like putting panel members on the spot. I would like each of our guests to introduce themselves and say something about them which is different and unconventional. My name is Jessica Southerd and I'm also part of Mars. I lead our corporate insights, innovation and foresight work supporting all parts of Mars and I'm based out of Tennessee. I like to think I have a superpower in understanding human behavior and I'm relentlessly curious in why people do what they do. I'm one of those people that can go to stores or shopping malls or amusement parks and just sit for hours on end observing and watching people. I'm Salim Zanari. currently leading human intelligence or in simple words insights at mars for our global emerging markets this spans markets in central south america middle east africa india and southeast asia i grew up in morocco and i was the grocery chief as i call myself always in charge of buying the daily groceries for my house something that struck me back then was the trust system that is so deeply entrenched between the shopkeeper and the families in the neighborhood around that shop and that in the heart of our discussion today Hi Sandeep, I'm Justin Stokes. My organization Ananda Partners works at the intersection of strategy, purpose, and growth. We work with companies, nonprofits, and foundations to help them to articulate their strategies and then manifest them out into the world. I've now lived on four continents and have lost track of how many countries that I've visited and worked in. Perhaps because of it, I've come to realize that home for me is a mindset. Thank you Justin and maybe you should explore an alternate career of being a travel blogger. <laughs> Salim there is so much talk and hype about e-commerce in our part of the world especially after covid. 
why is it we are giving it so much attention to this channel of e-commerce when it is likely to be at best about 8 to 9% of FMCG over the next decade? Can e-commerce in our part of the world ever become what it is uh, for South Korea or China? How do you see the infrastructure challenges and organizational mindset playing out in this space? Can this channel ever be profitable? Wow, we need the whole podcast just for myself to talk about this topic, Sandeep. I'll try to be brief. So e-commerce has been the single fastest growing channel in the world in the last decade. When you look at the growth index and all the KPIs related to this channel, B2C e-com itself represents more than $4 trillion globally with more than 2 billion people purchasing online in 2020. Those numbers are amazing. And this will not stop there, Sandy. As you rightly spotted, there is a small base effect that we have to be aware of. In 2018, as an example, only 11% of Indians shopped online compared to 87% in UK. The e-com contribution to FMCG sales remain quite small, about 5-6% today, and will only reach about 10% by 2025. This has been significantly boosted by the COVID circumstances, especially in countries that implemented the rigorous lockdown procedures to curb the spread of the virus. We're talking an average of doubling effects, kind of pre and post COVID so far. FMCG manufacturers as well, if we think from the other lens, they have to solidify their capabilities and teams to be able to adapt to this whole new online world, right? There is still a lot to do to accelerate the growth of FMCG in this channel, which can actually be quite profitable to your last question. Because if you think about it, this channel requires lower overheads cost, and it's simpler and leaner selling model for FMCG companies. I know that today some big players like Amazon decide to let go on their profits so that they can expand their footprint and penetrate more households. But for FMCG manufacturers, the model can be actually quite profitable seems there's a lot of moolah at the end of this journey, but maybe a little complex. Let me bring Jessica into this discussion. Jessica, you come from the developed part of the world and you know those markets really well. From those developed markets, do you think this conversation around e-commerce is excessive hype or do you think there is merit to it? I don't believe it's excessive hype especially as we look at some of the growth that's happened both here in the US, but also within and throughout Europe. One of the wild cards related to the explosion of e-commerce growth is the downside or sort of the indirect effects that we're seeing that have on the environment. So as we think about each of those purchases, whether it's food, whether it's the Amazon box that shows up at everyone's door every day, I think there's a tremendous amount of secondary waste that especially here in the US and in Europe, you're starting to get a lot of attention, a lot of spotlight. I'm very confident that a lot of those problems will be solved, or at least there's work in play to solve those. But I think it's a bit naive to think that it's just this exponential growth that'll continue to accelerate and there isn't a downside or a negative impact in terms of some of the secondary waste. On that note, let me move to my favorite channel, which is meant for social media addicts like me, live streaming. The social media influencers talk live about their product choices with hordes of devout followers listening to every word they say. For people like us who like to blow their trumpet every day, life doesn't get better than this. Just for some numbers for you, in China, nearly one third of the population follows live streaming. 
Justin, I know you've traveled many, many countries and many, many continents, maybe even Antarctica. What do you think about live streaming? Why does live streaming fundamentally work? And do you see this channel having the same kind of success outside China? It's a great question, Sandeep. What we're experiencing right now, what we're all living through is a fundamental shift in information flows. And if we were to go back 20, 30 years, we would be living in a world that we could describe as a broadcast world where there were just a few types of information and they flowed in one direction. Uh, and there were very few channels for feedback. Fast forward to today, and not only are we changing, we have changed into a participatory world. There is a generation plus of individuals that have come of age with technology that enables all of us to interact, to participate, to voice our own experiences. And that is having significant impact on our societies and especially our economies. So do I think that live streaming will have an impact outside of China? Yes, absolutely. Without a doubt. The idea that as a consumer or as a, a social media influencer that has an audience, we'll be able to tell our stories in authentic and real-time ways. To what extent the live streaming will take hold in other markets, I think will be adapted. For sure, it's a trend that will take off. Ladies and gentlemen, what he essentially meant was someone like me has an outstanding career ahead of him indulging in live streaming for the Indian audience. But Salim, I'd like your take on this issue. Will you ever buy products and services just listening to an influencer unwrapping a box of presents in front of you? Yes, I can definitely do that. I believe personally live streaming will continue booming in our parts of the world. So that will be helped by the need for entertainment and belonging as well. The Gen Z and millennials are really embracing this very fast. And I see it around me and in many countries in my geography. An angle I can speak about is actually the focus from a spend perspective that FMCG manufacturers are putting behind the influencers and even more broadly, the online media. In many cases, the spend on online media is now higher than the classical media. Think of TVs and billboards. That's a big, big shift because again, just five years ago, TV was like 80% of what each FMCG player is spending from a media perspective. Let's assume, for example, that Jess needs a hairstyler that can allow her to have different looks for different events. She will first search for what influencers recommend and watch maybe a live stream to see how the product they are recommending works and how the results look like. She can then confidently go and purchase that item, clicking on the link that is shared during the live streaming. Are you saying I need a new hairdo, Salim? <laughs> That's one example, no? <laughs> Don't you do that, Jess? <laughs> I was reflecting in advance on this question of like, will it go from China to other parts of the globe? Why has it taken off and why has it exploded in China? What sort of innate human need is it meeting? And you spoke to that, Salim, but it really resonated with me. I think one you hit on was trust. We could argue that just over the last year, if not the last decade, we've seen an erosion of trust, whether it's in institutions, traditional science in some parts of the market, big tech in other parts of the globe. I think the second one you hit on was choice fatigue. 
I've read that since the early 2000s, FMCG has just been exploding in terms of new product innovation and just a massive skew proliferation. And you think about the digital environment, the digital context where you're not limited to certain linear feet of shelf, I think consumers are feeling pretty overwhelmed. And so having that influencer endorsement just sort of becomes an easy shortcut to a good decision. One other key point in terms of the media ROI is I think with a lot of the the social selling and, and live streaming, there's also that sense of urgency that it creates, the social comparison or, or social proof that I think from a human psychology standpoint, it's like fear of missing out. But I think that also taps into that urgency or immediacy that drives that impulse behavior even more so than sort of traditional media. For some of the nerds who are listening to this podcast, and I'm sure there are many of them, if you analyze the frequency of words that are being used, the word trust has been used 11 times till now. Tells you a lot about the consumer in our part of the world. The second dimension I'd like to add is in terms of what the fundamental human need live streaming actually addresses. And in my personal experience, it is about people like us who wanted to make a career in the movie industry, but we couldn't. And this is the next best option to it. But I really like what Jessica said and like to pick her minds on something else. Jessica, one of the most interesting partnership examples I read about recently was about Whole Foods partnering with Headspace to encourage consumers improve their well-being to engage in more mindful eating. Why do you think such unconventional partnerships between FMCG, wellness and tech players are coming up? And do you think this is likely to scale up in the future? Absolutely. I think given the pace of change, you're seeing unlikely precedents in the partnerships and collaborations, which I think just reflects both the need, but also the pace of change. I think in today's world, everyone is a tech company. If you take P&G, which Salim and I both have shared backgrounds with, who would have thought they would be one of the highlights of CES, which is the world's biggest tech show two years in a row, just a few years back. In the example of Whole Foods and Headspace, I think what's great about it is they also acknowledge the broader trend or shift in this mindfulness and the link between mindful eating and the choices that you're making in that in-store environment and how that links to something like mindful eating and overall health and well-being. So they kind of looked just beyond maybe their immediate competitor, who's to my left and who's to my right, and sort of broadened their view of things really rooted in purpose which I think became a very natural fit for them. I'd like to point out a fancy contradiction here. So here are companies saying that let's partner with others for skill sets we might not have. And you have governments saying the world over that let's look inward. And even if we don't have skill sets, let's build them. There's a clear disconnect in terms of how political leaders are thinking and how businessmen are thinking. Although political leaders and businessmen are also converging. Justin, what is your take on this issue of unconventional partnerships in our part of the world? It's a great question. And to build on what Jessica just spoke about, partnerships in emerging economies will share this kind of the same characteristics of the trend of partnerships in developed economies, which underlying is the pursuit of the creation of new pools of value. And really, those partnerships are forming at the nexus of three different characteristics. 
One is the characteristic of identity, who consumers think they are, how they connect with others, and who they want to become in the future. The necessity that consumers have in terms of the needs that they're trying to fulfill with their shopping. And then the third is community. What we're finding both in lower income countries and developed countries is that the partnerships that are coming together are searching for possibility at the nexus of those three spaces. Moving on, I have to touch the elephant in the room without which this podcast can never be complete. And let's move to the biggest channel in our part of the world, which is traditional trade. There have been so many eulogies written about this channel over the last decade, but it has hung on to be the most important channel in terms of business. Salim, I'd like your views on this. Why does traditional trade click after all? Is it because that person is the referee in a cricket match? Is it about trust? And do you see it losing significant share over the next decade? How do you see this channel evolving? When we scan through the future dynamics in emerging markets, TT is actually by far the biggest channel in contribution to total FMCG sales. In some markets, it's even exceeding 90% of the total ACV. If you actually look at the projections of ACV by channel done by renowned companies like Edge Retail, you will see that even in a decade from now, TT will remain the biggest channel in majority of emerging markets. First and foremost, because of proximity and convenience. It's always much practical to go grab a bread loaf and some jam from your grocery at the corner. This said, the TT shop owners are aware of all the threats around them, be it aggressive discounters opening in their areas or the eternal price war that they have with modern trade customers, the hypers and supers or even e-commerce as well. So they know about this and they have to keep evolving. And there is also a general need for them to modernize themselves and to embrace the new technologies. Thank you, Salim. That's very, very interesting. I'm a big fan of sitcoms and I always like the hit British sitcom Black Mirror. If you have been an ardent fan of Black Mirror, you'll see a lot of channels which have been showcased in that series, whether it's uh, robotic-oriented machines to make fresh produce, you will see human-less technology-led stores, you will see drones that bring the store near you. Turns out, these are not futuristic after all, and some of this work is in full flow in the developed part of the world. Some of these channels which I spoke about are in their stages of infancy, Jessica, I'd like your thoughts on this. Do you see these channels ever getting scale and profitability? No, not just in terms of profitability. I feel like that's a problem you can get really creative in solving. But again, particularly here in the US, you just see tremendous power in the hands of some of these bigger retailers. I don't see that going away. <laughs> The future isn't binary, right? It's often something much more messy and something in between. If I reflect on just what Salim was speaking to in terms of traditional trade, some of the bigger stores like Walmart, Target, Kroger, and so forth are actually evolving and reassessing what do I want this experience to be? What do I want this experience to look like? But in terms of the how we shop, I definitely think there's a lot more runway there in terms of subscriptions, memberships, loyalty cards but also the social live streaming influencers that continue to be ways that people can experience our products, ways that people can experience our brands. 
I don't see those ever getting as big or surpassing the physical store environment and the role of the traditional trade channels. You know, touch is one of our core senses as a human being and pretty much on par with food and water and air. You have to have physical touch to thrive and develop. And so I think people will crave those physical experiences and connections and that it won't just be e-commerce until the end of time. Interesting. And will a day ever come that these channels will be, say, 10% of total FMCG sales? Do you think by 2035 that stage is likely? Yes, I do see it in totality. In and of themselves, not so much. But we were naive in thinking, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I was working on our pet care business and we saw all these small brands pop up and we kind of disregarded them and sort of ignored them. And then what we saw is over time, collectively, they actually accounted for a huge percentage of the market share that in isolation or one by one, we sort of disregarded. So I I would say in totality, yes, they will be more representative part of the market. Will they ever get to the size and scale of the Walmarts or, or Amazons even of the world? I would say no. That's a very interesting prediction and a pretty brave one. Justin, I want to bring you in for a perspective on the emerging markets. Think of cities which are densely populated, cities like Manila, cities like Jakarta, Bangalore, where I come from, Sao Paulo, Cairo. Do you think these newer channels like vending machines, robotic-oriented machines, human-less technology stores, drones to bring the store near you, do you think such models will ever be successful in our part of the world? Yeah. Yeah, I think they already are in a couple of different markets. And I think they will continue to prove that they have a place and a significant place. Will they compete with traditional trade in the near future? Probably not. But they'll be a mainstay, especially in the cities. And it comes down to the economics. And in some cases, there is space in the market economics for these types of channels to play an important role in people's lives. 10 years ago in Jakarta, you had a significant number of mostly women entrepreneurs that hacked BlackBerry Messenger, Facebook Messenger, WhatsApp, and Instagram, and set up their own channels where they would have 1,000, 2,000, 5,000, 10,000 followers. And they had one to two products that they would be selling. And they had their followers. They got known for their products. And so when they had a supply of products, they would send out notification to their followers and say, I've got 200 of these products in my stock right now. First 200 people that want them, just say the word and you get them. And sure enough, this jumped onto the radar of some of the major companies that we were working with. So this was 10 years ago. And I think as those hacks start to become more recognized and more established in different markets that solve specific market problems or market constraints, I think there's room for those channels. Absolutely. The story writers of Black Mirror want all that futuristic after all. Salim, let me be a jerk with you now and let me push you to take a stand here. When we have so many channels working together, addressing the same consumer, there is bound to be conflict. As an FMCG firm, how do you keep the traditional trade and the newer channels happy from a pricing, payment terms and promotion perspective while also factoring in their size? Isn't friction only a matter of time? 
Oh yes, Sandeep, this is really a true tension and it exists already in many markets. But before I start, I really want to remind you and our audience that decision on price to consumer remains actually at the sole discretion of the customers. As you can imagine, each customer and shop owner is following a different pricing strategy that will depend on their internal priorities or personal priorities for their competitive environment and their primary targets and the shopper profiles they are serving. So if I'm a discounter chain, for example, I will base my pricing on the everyday low price strategy. So whatever happens, I'll always make sure I'm offering the cheapest price on the key SKUs I have in my store compared to all the competitors around me from any channel, any shopkeeper. I can tell you from my previous experiences, the discounters are tough, really tough on FMCG players because to hit those everyday low price, they always ask for the lowest cost to serve. They ask for the deepest discount levels from us as FMCG players. On the other side of the X of the spectrum, to give an example, if I'm a premium supermarket chain, so I will allow extra spend in my PNL to create a unique, differentiated shopping experience for my demanding target shoppers who are willing to pay an extra for it actually. And my pricing strategy in that case will be set based on a higher premium to compensate for those extra investments I am making in my PNL for that special experience. So as an FMCG player, the ultimate role for us is to deliver quality products, experiences to consumers. And this has to be done through our customers as they are the ones dealing with consumers and shoppers. We account for the customer's needs while we are designing internally the strategies, the brand plans, and most importantly, while we build our trade terms with our key customers. So this will surely create some frictions between the different channels and customers, but it is actually a healthy friction because all of us, be it manufacturers, distributors, or customers are all doing our best to satisfy the end consumer and to expand the categories we play in. Also for members of the audience, if you ever want to give bad news, you always add the word healthy. So healthy friction is a term you should always remember. I'm moving to the final question, and this is for all three members in our panel. As a result of emerging channels and alternate business models, what are the implications for leading FMCGs? And the second question I have for each of you is, what does it take to win? I'll start with what does it take to win in terms of the opportunities I see. I mean, yes, I 100% agree that CPG is intensely crowded, but I still see opportunities to expand our customer base as well as revenue streams. And I see two opportunities in particular. One is this idea of hyper-local but global. And I think we've hit on this a few times. People are traveling with their taste buds. They're seeking novel experiences. They're globe-trotting with their devices. And so I think CPG companies that can get really creative and think about how can you create a network, whether it's DTC or B2Bs, that can give people that global experience but in a very convenient, hyper way, I think right now you're seeing a lot of smaller brands start off in the digital space and really leverage both brand positioning as well as storytelling. Brands like Magic Spoon or Ugly, they're sort of reinventing products that people adored at earlier stages in life, but bringing them to life in a much bolder, healthier way, very fun, whimsical, sort of immersive experiences. For me, there are two keys to win. We first have to think omni-channel. And second, we have to define strong foresights around the channels and the business models. 
it is key to understand the consumer's and shopper's journey and the different touch points FMCG players can leverage on to enhance their experience and to convert them at any channel they buy from. It's also important to think ahead and prepare our organizations and systems to cater for the different emerging channels and to follow the shoppers wherever they go in their journey. So FMCG players need to call out their key bets, which should be two to three channels, while allowing space for test and learn in a couple more at a smaller scale, where the size of price is smaller maybe today, but has potential to boom in the future. I'm going to play the role of contrarian in this case. One of the main implications for established FMCGs is these new channels are going to be a threat, not perhaps in terms of direct competition, but in terms of the eating away at consumers segment by segment as the hyper-local and homegrown where these new channels will enable consumers to connect with products that speak directly to their communities, to their environments, and enrich their stories in ways that large FMCGs are going to be challenged to compete with. Reaching out to consumers outside of what are traditionally the normal channels that we're used to working through. What are the markets that we're developing? What are the new experiences that we can create? How might we use partnerships to enable us to get beyond the current confines and constraints of the business model we're operating in right now. Before we call it a day, I want to leave you with a few thoughts. Number one, technology-led evolution is bound to happen. And as a result, these newer channels will play a significant role in being present in moments with our changing lifestyles. In the best case, they are going to be healthy friction. In the worst case, they're going to be a threat. Number two, human beings often revert to the mean, or as they say, the more the world changes, the more it remains the same. As someone who comes from this part of the world, we all value the human connection. Think of the person at the traditional store being a referee in your cricket match. You're not gonna let that connection go. A channel like traditional trade will adapt and will stay important. Number three, all these channels are bound to increase our touch points with our consumers. Think of how it can help them buy more chocolates and hopefully listen more to my voice. Thank you everyone for joining us today. This is Sandeep. Stay curious. Thank you.